Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Ben Azadi is a three-time best-selling author, keto and fasting educator, and he is on a mission to help 1 billion people live a healthier lifestyle. Ben is known as the health detective because he investigates dysfunction in the body. He educates, not medicates, to bring it back to normal function. He believes in the ancient wisdom within the body and that the world's greatest physician lies within us. Ben went from being depressed and clinically obese to lowering his body fat percentage to 6% and becoming a keto educator. Ben is a personal trainer, a certified health coach, and has brought a global awareness to ancient healing. He hosts the Keto Camp podcast, has an incredible Instagram feed, has a clubhouse room, and an awesome YouTube channel. When he's not sharing content, he's learning about new content to share. This man quite possibly is unstoppable. Welcome, Ben Azadi. All right. On this episode, we're so excited to have Ben Azadi from Keto Camp. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm really good. We're talking about the beautiful weather I'm experiencing, so <laughs> I'm nice and warm here. <laughs> Well, here in cold Canada, we just had two days of a snowstorm, so we're a little bit jealous of your lifestyle right now, for sure. So I just wondered if you could share with us a little bit about when you realized that food addiction might be part of your story. Did you have an aha moment, and can you share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I did have an aha moment, and it took me quite some time to realize it. I... Growing up here in Miami Beach, Florida, I was I was pretty much left to my own devices, meaning my parents divorced, my mom worked three jobs, and I didn't really have anybody at home. So I hung out with the wrong crowd, ate fast food, ate a standard American diet, ate a lot of sugar, processed food, and I played video games a lot. So I had an addiction to video games. I had an addiction to food and toxic relationships as well. I didn't realize that I had an addic- addiction problem as I was a teenager going through it. But then when I hit 24 years old, back in uh, the year 2008, I was rock bottom. I was depressed. I was suicidal. I weighed 250 pounds. So I was physically obese, but also mentally obese, where I had really bad thoughts. Uh, I wanted to end my life going through a really bad breakup with my ex-girlfriend, just rock bottom. And I kept looking for answers in my refrigerator. I kept going to the kitchen, opening up, eating something. And, And it helped short term, right? I got this hit of dopamine. And it was an immediate gratification sort of response, but it was not lasting. It was very fleeting, resulting in me going back to the refrigerator. And I wasn't necessarily hungry, uh, but there was a hole inside of me that I was attempting to fill up with food. Now, even at this point, I didn't realize I had, I had an addiction. Uh, it wasn't until I really started to read books from amazing authors like Wayne Dyer and, and Bob Proctor and a few others that... I started to realize that I had a a problem here and I I needed to change. And it really helped me shift my mindset and my thoughts from being the victim and blaming other people, blaming my genetics, blaming my metabolism, blaming my uh, enabling family members and blaming anything that I can get my hands on to really taking ownership and understanding that I'm responsible for the results in my life. I'm the reason why I'm unhappy, I'm broke, I'm obese, and have no goals in my life. So I decided to take ownership, uh, which was a huge step for me because I, I hadn't been doing that my entire life. And that moment was very empowering for me because I became the victor of that moment and of the future. And I stopped being the victim of the past. So I start, I set on, on this journey to really focus on health because I started to have goals. And I knew that the bigger your goals, the more energy required. And at that point, I had no energy. I, I, I felt like I was 94 years old, but I was 24 years old. So I started to exercise, started to eat better. And it really wasn't... So I went through this transformation. I, I went in nine months, I was able to lose 80 pounds. I went from 34% body fat down to 6% body fat. 
Uh, I carved out a physical six pack, which was important to me at that time. But the most important thing that I achieved was a, a mental six pack. I achieved better thoughts. I started to think better thoughts and have better goals and cut people out of my life and eat better foods. And I started to develop this relationship on what sugar does to me and how I would feel afterwards and what versus like an egg or an avocado versus the, you know, my energy levels will be better with an egg and avocado. I'd be more inspired versus sugar. I might feel good short term, but then I feel down my energy slumps. I need to go get more sugar. But even at that point, after going through my transformation, I didn't realize that I had a, an addiction problem. And I have a, a unique view on addiction that from other people out there, and this is just my view and my, my personal experience about it. I view addiction as a lot of energy, energy that we have that is being manifested towards bad things. And that could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be food, it could be pornography, it could be whatever it is that we're taking that energy into. So what I didn't realize that I did, now I realize that I did it, was I took all that energy I had in me and I took it away from the sugar, from the video games, from the bad relationships. And then I transferred it into other things that were going to serve my future in a positive way. For example, studying health and nutrition, studying exercise and, and helping other people. So it was kind of like a transference of energy. And that was a big aha moment for me because I realized that there's a lot of energy here. And if I could just direct it into something that could serve me in humanity, I could use that as a positive tool versus a negative tool. And that was a big realization for me on my journey. That's amazing. And through that, and I've heard you tell your story, and I'm still trying to remember if I've ever heard you explain how you landed on keto, you know, that that kind of being like, that's, that's your, you know, your human diet at this point. How did you get there? Yeah. I've, I, so when I went through my transformation, it wasn't with keto, it was uh, calorie counting, low fat eating every two to three hours. So I achieved the, the weight loss with that, but I was one of those people who were fit, but still sick. I had acne, I had uh, digestive issues, I had brain fog. So yeah, I looked fit on the outside, but I wasn't healthy on the inside. So I was exploring why I didn't feel well. So I did a vegan approach for a year and a half. I was a plant-based 100%, which didn't really serve me well. That was in 2012. So I did that for a year and a half. And then in 2013, I started to get into the research on keto. I started to, to read books like from Jimmy Moore, for example, and, and my mentor, Dr. Daniel Pompa, Mercola, Dave Asprey. And then I decided, and Paul Chuck, and then I decided that, you know, this vegan approach is not working for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do keto. I'm going to do keto. And I actually did it with intermittent fasting. And that's where I took it from, you know, health, from a hobby and understanding how it works at the cellular level. And it really helped me uh, have better energy levels, mental clarity, focus. And I started to get healthy on the inside out versus the outside in. And that's what started for me back in 2013 is when I discovered keto. That's awesome. So for the last eight years, essentially, if I can do math correctly, not yeah. my strong suit, I'm just going to be <laughs> honest there. Um, you've been walking the walk and talking the talk. And, and so what we're wondering is because many people, many of our clients often find keto to be a way through that sugar, flour, grains kind of noise that's happening for them, right? Their, their addiction outlet. So where do you think individuals get keto wrong? Like, and, and what do you think about fat bombs and that kind of thing? Like, Give us the, give us all the, the down and dirty on that because we, we struggle with our clients who show up and they're like, but I'm doing keto, but I'm having these fat bombs. Oh, I'm baking with almond flour, that kind of thing. So where do yeah. they go wrong? And what do you think about those kinds of things? Yeah. Great question. Well, keto, a lot of people, the good thing about keto is that it's very popular, right? A lot of people they'll, they'll see, they'll hear about transformations. They'll go on uh, the internet, Dr. Google, and they'll see a lot of information on keto. Now, the bad thing is that there's a lot of bad information out there. So the way that I teach keto and that we teach it here at Keto Camp is to teach it and, and apply it the way that our ancestors did it, but also to apply it in a way to improve cellular health. So the truth about keto is this. Keto is not a diet. Keto is a metabolic process, and it has been around since humans have existed. Every single one of our ancestors, they did keto, every one of them, because their environment forced them into ketosis. And then when they had the opportunity, they got out of ketosis. So what I teach is this process called keto flexing, which I'm about to release a brand new book called that. And the goal is at first, we want to 
reset the hormones. We want to teach the metabolism and the 70 trillion cells in the body to choose fat instead of sugar. When I was obese, when I had a sugar addiction, when I was going to the refrigerator looking for answers, I was stuck as a sugar burner. That's not fun. You have to rely on carbohydrates and you have to rely on it often, every two to three hours, which is a very fast way to shorten your lifespan. So the way that I explain it is when we look at the body from a cellular level, the human body has about 70 trillion cells inside of it. And the 70 trillion cells only have two options for a fuel source, either the cell is burning glucose, sugar, or it's burning fat, ketones. The problem when you're stuck as a sugar burner is, I already mentioned, it's not fun. You got to eat every two to three hours, but also it creates a lot of cellular smoke, cellular byproducts. So the analogy that I give is when you're burning sugar as your primary fuel source, it's kind of like a Mack truck that's speeding through the highway with all the smoke being blasted out of the exhaust pipe, like envision the smoke going on the other cars, going on the trees, uh, uh, making the, the road dirty. That's what it's like when your cells are burning sugar because it creates a lot of cellular byproducts, not healthy. But when you teach the body to transition into ketosis, that's like a Tesla, right? Cleaner fuel source for the environment, cleaner source for your cellular environment. So what I teach here at Keto Camp is to get disciplined short-term. You know, you, you gradually decrease the carbs, increase your protein and fat. Protein is very important, by the way, because it helps satisfy you. It activate, activates these hormones like cholecystokinine, peptide YY, which help you feel full. So you increase protein and fat, decrease carbohydrates, and now you've taught yourselves to switch over to fat as a fuel source. And how that could help you with the sugar addiction is tremendous because once you burn through your sugar reserves, which is called your glycogen stores, you only have about 2,000 calories to burn through. And if you're stuck as a sugar burner and you start burning through the sugar reserves, your brain starts to panic because glucose drops low and the brain sends the body intense signals for cravings, for carbohydrates, for sugar to fulfill that desire not fun. But when you do keto the right way, now you burn through your sugar reserves and the brain could use the ketones as an alternate fuel source, which is actually the preferred fuel source for the brain. So you have mental clarity, you have focus, some of your brain fog is gone, you start to remember names better. And it's so empowering because now you have achieved this metabolic freedom and flexibility. And a lot of people they don't do it the right way because they'll go into keto. They might even do it too fast, too soon. They do cold turkey and their body gets the keto flu, which is like a carb flu, or they'll get symptoms. So I do like a slower approach. But then once you're in ketosis, you want to make sure you're eating the clean keto foods. And your question was about the fat bombs. Like, are the fat bombs good? If they're clean, they could be good. However, for some people, it leads to sugar cravings, and then they overdo it with the fat bombs. And now they're addicted to the fat bombs, and we don't want to be addicted to the fat bombs. So you have it's very unique to the person. If you're somebody who could have a couple of fat bombs a couple times per week, and it's not leading to another addiction, totally fine. But if you find yourself every day, fat bomb, fat bomb, fat bomb, and you just transfer now one addiction for another, that could be a problem. So we got to make sure it's it's very custom to the person. We have to understand that. And I see both of you agreeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so helpful, right? Because there is so much misinformation out there. And so individuals will show up and seek our services with keto in mind. And it's like, I've been intermittent fasting and I just started right away. And then they're having, it's like restriction and then a binge. So they don't understand that it's about metabolic health and we need to have our hunger hormones regulated before we can start this because we don't really know what hungry is when we're first starting this process. So I've heard you speak before about helping people in this transition to kick the sugar habit about including like replace, replacement items like Zevia. Uh, what are your yeah. thoughts on non like sweeteners in general. And what about stevia specifically? Because we have heard it's an endocrine disruptor. Yeah, so, so when it comes to sweeteners, there's a lot of different ones out there. I'll speak about the bad ones first, the ones that are on the, I would say, uh, inflammatory side. Uh, so uh, that would be like aspartame and sucralose. That could disrupt the gut dysbiosis. That could actually lead to more cravings. Not a big fan of those two. Uh, I'm a big, so what I like, Instead, I do like stevia. I, I think pure stevia extract could be okay for some people. I also like monk fruit and erythritol for some people. But of course, you still want that 
in moderation. And you also want to see if it is giving you a, a glucose response, because if it is, then it's not agreeing with you. And you probably want to stay away from that as you do some more work on your hormones and your metabolism. So it could disrupt the endocrine, but it's not uh, that simple where it will do that for everybody. You would have to test your glucose to see if there's a response for that. But they, those are the safer options out there. Ideally, of course, you want to be able to go on with keto without having that but there is a higher hierarchy here of things we could have, right? We want to make sure we're avoiding the processed sugars and then we're avoiding the bad sweeteners. And then if you do well with the good sweeteners and you've tested that with your glucose response, then that in moderation could be okay. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're speaking our language. It's basically harm reduction, right? That like yeah. ultimately the end goal of harm reduction is that there's doing no harm whatsoever. And once you've achieved that, then awesome. But just kind of taking that slow approach, why why uh, remove it all and be miserable and and have somebody give up and quit versus let's step you down and find these replacements and make life worth living for, for a lot of our clients, right? Life without some of these things is just not worth living, even though it is causing so many problems. So I so appreciate that approach. Thank you for explaining that. We've also heard you mention using L-glutamine to help with sugar withdrawal cravings. We often recommend this supplement as well. Are there other supplements we should consider for withdrawal for withdrawals or cravings. Yeah. Yeah. I love the term harm reduction. It's good. And yeah, L-glutamine is great because it does calm the part of the brain that lights up with a, a sugar addiction, sugar craving, because it's the same part of the brain that lights up with the cocaine addiction, making sugar as addicting as cocaine in this scenario. So L-glutamine will help you wean. I always say that there are other things that we can incorporate. I did a video on my uh, keto camp YouTube channel on, I think it was six ways to reduce shape cravings on keto. Fenugreek could be a good one. So could cinnamon. Um, you could also take, uh, like a bitter melon could help with the glycemic response. And then there are a few others that I can't think of right now, but those are, are a good start right there. The biggest one, the best one on that list is the L-glutamine. So I would start there and see, and you could, you could have the L-glutamine when you start experiencing cravings or just throughout the day as like maintenance. I would start there. And if that's not enough, you could add like the fenugreek or the cinnamon or some of the other things that I'm forgetting right now. Yeah, no, we really appreciate any input you have on the biochemical repair because it makes the process of transitioning so much better for clients. And while you were speaking, I was just thinking, you know, we hear about red light therapy. We hear about cold water therapy. Are those practices that you advocate? And are there other practices that might benefit biochemical repair? Yeah, those are great. Absolutely. If you could get a good red light lamp, I have one that sits on my desk every morning here. I, I use it for about 15 minutes. That's a great way to stimulate uh, the mitochondria. That's a good way to get some, some red light into you, which has been shown to, to have numerous benefits. It could help with skin. Um, it could help with energy. So, and then cold exposure is terrific as well, because anytime you force adaptation in the body in a, in, in a, in a hormetic stressor, like a, in a good way, your body's going to have to adapt and it adapts by making your cells stronger. So good cells get stronger, bad cells don't adapt. So the body gets rid of damaged mitochondria, damaged cells, and then it makes the ones that are good even better and stronger. So cold exposure is a way to do that. And cold exposure has many benefits. I mean, one of them is that it actually could help with your glucose. It could help with your glycemic response. It could help also activate something called brown fat, which is brown adipose tissue which helps your body burn more of the white fat. The white fat is the bad fat that we have around our love handles and our organs, our visceral fat. We, we don't like the, the white fat. So when you're exposed to cold temperatures, whether you're walking out there in, in Canada or in Montana, or whether you're taking a cold bath and you're shivering, you're activating, your body needs to do something to deal with that. So it activates brown fat. Brown fat seeks out white fat, turns some of it beige and then brown. So you burn more calories, you burn more fat, it regulates your, your glucose levels. So there's numerous benefits to that. And that's something you could do that's very easy. It's, you don't have to buy a red light therapy lamp. You could just jump into a cold body of water, take a cold shower, five minutes or so. That's enough to really help with all these benefits here. It's so interesting, the the cold therapy too. I mean, we have like a cryo tank in town that people can go and get in or whatever, but we also, I mean, we have lots of natural hot springs. I'm right near Yellowstone. And so we can just go right down and we can get into the freezing cold 
pool into the super hot pool, you know, and all those in-between temperatures. But the most interesting thing about cold therapy for me is it really um, takes me to, um, it makes me think of there is a tool in dialectical behavioral therapy that talks about using temperature to help, you know, regulate when our brain is just freaking out for whatever reason, right? Like maybe we're in a high risk situation and it's hit that panic button. Like you were talking about earlier, you know, and immersing one of the tools is immersing your face in a bowl of ice water Mm. or something along those lines. And it, and I, I think the mechanism, I believe the mechanism has to do with the vagus nerve kind of stuff. And so it just makes me wonder, you know, how like psychology and bio biology are starting to come together and really find these tools for people to start using and realizing that it's working on, it's, it's not just a bandaid, like, Oh, you're having a moment, go stick your face in some ice water. It's like, no, it's actually doing something to your cells. That's actually good for your cells. And it's creating a new healthier foundation. So the next time that situation comes up, you have healthy cells to work from now, not these ones that are just so pre-programmed to, to react in such a way. So thank you for speaking to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to add real yeah. quick to that. You're, you're so right. And, and that's the adaptation. Something else that happens when you're exposed to cold temperatures like that is a process called Hunter's reflex. And what that, what that essentially means is Let's say you jump into a cold body of water and your body starts shivering. It starts to panic because it thinks that you're in danger. So what it does, the the body does not care. I mean, it does care, but it wants to prioritize your vital organs, the brain, the heart. It wants to prioritize that. So yeah, you could lose your fingers and your toes. The body will still survive, but you can't lose your brain, your heart, these vital organs. So what it does, Hunter's reflex comes, comes into play. It starts to shuttle all of your blood flow away from your extremities, again, because it doesn't really care about losing your fingers and toes, you could still survive. And then it shuttles it to your your, uh, vascular system, it shuttles it to your heart, your brain, and it gives you this vascular massage, which helps with testosterone. It helps with, of course, glucose, like we spoke about, it helps with your immune system. And then also it's helping the lymphatic system, which is also a, a very important system that helps you detoxify. So, and, and then to your point, it's also activating this, this vagal tone. So it's gonna help you feel, when you're done getting out of there, you're nice and relaxed, you're nice and calm. So I've seen some people take a cold shower about 60 minutes before bed, in the shower, it invigorates you, but once you get out and you start to relax, it calms you down. So that's a great way to actually activate that vagal tone, like you said. Oh, I love that. How long do we have to stand in a cold shower to make that effective? <laughs> uh, you know, a People couple, want a couple to know. of minutes. Yeah, okay. two, to, two to three minutes. You could also alternate, like you, like you mentioned, hot, cold, hot, cold, yeah. and then finish with cold too. Okay. Sounds good. Oh, I'm going to try it, but I'm so scared. All right. You're, you're known as the health detective and on your keto camp podcast, you know, we know, you know, we know it's hard to pick favorites for sure, but, but of all your interviews to date, you know, what interview did you do that really caused you to change something about the way you approach food or health? Mm, What has been the most impactful? Yeah. Yeah. The most impactful one from all my interviews. Let's see. Hmm. I've learned so much. Um, you know, carnivore was something that the carnivore diet was something that I had heard about, done some research on it. And then I interviewed a few people like Maria Emmerich. I've interviewed uh, Dr. Paul Saladino and it, it really, in, in Ken Berry, and it really inspired me to actually you do it because I, I wanted to apply this as a tool for my Keto Camp Academy members. But there's, you know, one way to do it, which is just, Hey, I heard all of this good research. I've interviewed people. I said, it's a lot of benefits to it. You should do it too. I don't like that approach. I want to actually do it first and live it to lead it. So it inspired me last summer to do 40 days of strict carnivore to see what it did for me, do lab work. And it was astonishing. I, I, it transformed my health that it helped with my autoimmune sim- symptoms. It helped all my inflammatory markers decreased from day one versus day 40. I felt better. My skin looked better. My hunger, I I was not even hungry. I found myself doing more like one meal a day, two meal a day. So it was a great thing. And I wouldn't have probably done it if it wasn't for me interviewing these amazing people. So can I ask you why you didn't stay carnivore if it had these benefits? Yeah, of course. Well, the same thing, I, I, the v- way I view carnivore and keto and, and veganism and any of these, these nutritional approaches, I don't think, I know that we shouldn't stick with the same thing long-term. And what happens is when you look at our ancestors, they never did that either. So yeah, there were periods of time where our ancestors did keto, but then they came across some carbohydrates and they got out of ketosis and then went back in. 
there were periods of time where they were carnivore or, or vegan, but then they didn't stick with it long term. I, I believe we're not designed to be with the same nutritional plan long term. And our and somebody might be able to do six months to a year even longer and thrive, but it's really just a matter of time before the genetics catches up to them. So what I like is a variation. And I learned this from my mentor, Dr. Pompa. He calls it diet variation. Anytime you change your diet, right? You change from going being keto to having a day where you get out of ketosis, which is what I call a keto flex day, or you do 40 days of carnivore and then you get out of it. That's forcing the adaptation. It's stressing the microbiome. It's creating diversity in the gut. But then when you eat the same foods for too long, your diversity in your gut is minimized and that's not what we want. So carnivore, the reason I got off of it is because same thing. I used it as a tool and now I go back to it. I'll do seven days. I'll do 30 days. I might do 60 days. For somebody who has severe autoimmune disease, they would want to be on carnivore much longer. But the answer is not the answer is not to stay with carnivore forever. The answer is to fix the gut while they're doing carnivore, and then they can start reintroducing some foods and see how their body responds. So that's that's my view on all these nutritional plants. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense, right? We know we're all bio-individual. One diet, one food plan doesn't work for everyone universally. And the clients that we work with, they're all on a flexible food plan, and it, it changes. It, it's diverse. Over time, maybe... We have to remove something. Maybe we add something in to help them make feel better. Like you said, just get that kind of jumpstart back into their recovery. I've heard you talk about in terms of keto being what the, what's the difference between being in ketosis and being fat adapted? Because I find that a little confusing sometimes. Yeah, good question. So being in ketosis means you're registering, let's say 0.5 or above beta hydroxybutyrate in the blood bloodstream. So that means technically you're in ketosis. So that could happen typically within 14 days of following a ketogenic approach. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're fat adapted. That takes on average about eight to 12 weeks. Fat adaptation means now you've built up this metabolic machinery. Now your body has this metabolic freedom where let's say you you, you decide to like do a, a 36 hour fast, right? Now your body could do a really good job at burning your fat cells throughout that entire fast and raising ketones to sustain you so you could feel good, that won't happen in the first 14 days. You're in ketosis, but you haven't really carved out this metabolic flexibility. What we want is metabolic freedom. That's fat adaptation. So there's a difference there. Now, somebody might be able to achieve fat adaptation much sooner. Somebody might achieve it much later. To your point, we're all biochemical individuals, but that's that's the difference there. Yeah, you're technically in ketosis at 0.5 or above, but you're not technically fat adapted until you're able to really achieve this metabolic freedom and flexibility. So then how can I, just starting this process, know if I'm fat adapted? One of the best things to do is to skip, uh, just go do a 24-hour fast and uh, look at your glucose and ketones, right? If you do a 24-hour fast or even longer, and then you're looking at your glucose, what you want to see glucose gradually dropping during the fast, ketones rising, and then also see how you feel. If you feel great, you feel better, you're seeing the right trends right there, that's a good sign that you're fat adapted. Now, you could always do some blood work. You could always do like a fasting insulin, A1C, and look at those numbers and see if you're hitting those optimal numbers as well. But an easy test is just to go to day. Maybe you practice fasting and see how you feel. And if some, that makes somebody feel uncomfortable. I get it. You could always start with a meal, right? You could just say, I'm going to skip a meal and see how I feel. And you could base it off of that as well. So would there be an advantage? I mean, having a history of, you know, sugar addiction yourself, would there be an advantage of being in ketosis when it comes to being, to beating it? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I know that that's not your path, but having had that and now working with clients, I'm sure you see it. Is there an advantage or not? Or is it just something completely separate? There's a big advantage to using ketosis. I didn't do it myself. So what I did was I transferred my energy into like goals that served me. So there's a, a couple of things that I think would really benefit your audience here. One of the best ways I was able to overcome addiction uh, or transfer this addiction was yes, ketosis has helped. I didn't do it initially, but how it could help you is you don't get those glucose spikes up and down. So you're going to be in control. You're going to achieve this metabolic freedom. You might want to be in ketosis a little bit longer than the average person as you really work on this addiction. But the second component, and this is what I did to start, was getting really clear on my purpose 
what is my highest values? And then aligning my day-to-day schedule to live on purpose with my purpose. A lot of people, they don't know what their highest values are. They're living life according to what other people have projected onto them. Like their parents saying, oh, you should be a lawyer. You should be a doctor. You should do this. You should do that. You know, it, you know, your, your brother did this. Your auntie did this. And then they're living a life according to what others expected for them. And that's an issue. There's a great book out there called The, five, the Top Five Regrets of the Dying from an author named Bonnie Ware. And she was a hospice nurse in Australia. And she would have conversations with these, these individuals who were on their deathbed. And she would ask them, what is your biggest regret? You know, as they're getting ready to ascend into the next afterlife, they're asked, they're, they're asked this question. And they had various answers. But the number one regret when she surveyed these people, the number one re- regret was not living a life true to themselves, but instead living a life of what others expected of them right? They had others project their highest values onto them and they lived their life according to others' values, which is a big regret. So once you're clear on what's important to you, I've done the work myself. I know what's important to me. And then I align my schedule to be congruent with that. And and when I find myself personally, when I see my calendar empty, like the calendar being empty is a problem for me. I, I always say, the uh, empty space on my calendar is the devil's playground, right? So for me, when I line up and I, and I put my goals and my activities in my calendar, I live according to that. And I'm going to be on course. I'm going to feel inspired. I'm going to feel happy because for me, success, my favorite definition of success came from Earl Nightingale. He said, success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. An ideal is an idea that you have fallen in love with. So it's your highest value. It's that big goal or big goals. And as long as you are progressing towards that, so every day you're doing something to really get closer to where you are today to your goal, you're going to be successful. You're going to be the victor and not the victim. And that's what I've done for myself. So I think it's very important to, yes, use a strategy like ketosis so you can master your hormones and your blood sugars, but then also get really clear on what's important to you, what's your purpose, and then start living on purpose with your purpose. And that's how I was able to overcome it. Yeah. And it certainly explains why you would agree to do an interview with us on a Saturday morning (laughs) (laughs) instead of being on the beach or something, right? Exactly. You um, You know, so And from, you know, listening to your story just multiple times across the platforms, whatever, you know, and hearing you speak today too, it just really solidifies for me that you truly walk in what we would call recovery versus just like abstinence. You're not just abstaining from these outlets, whether it was the sugar, or I know I've heard you talk about video games or other outlets that, you know, addiction showed up for you. Like you truly walk in recovery. And so I just appreciate you sharing that yet again. And just that reminder of like, there, there is so much life out there. If we can just get this, you know, the noise, the food out of the way we can, and start actually living our life. That doesn't, we realize that isn't actually a value and that it's just, it's just, you know, whatever it's, it's noise. So, so speaking of Maria Emmerich, (laughs) Clarissa and I interviewed her not that long ago, and we actually just released our episode for her yesterday. Um, but she talked a lot about caffeine. We talked to her a lot about caffeine and, um, Mm. And it really inspired us to do no Feb brewery. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but um, that's what we're doing. Yeah, interesting. No, that's the first time I heard about that. (laughs) It was definitely worse than I imagined it was going to be. I think Clarissa got off Mm -hmm. a little bit easier, but about day four, I was... I was angry. I was irritable. I, I said to my husband, a life without caffeine is, I don't know if this is a life that I want to live kind of deal. And he's like, Oh my gosh, the dramatics. Good job. (laughs) Um, but anyways, you know, so, so anyways, there's, there's so many opinions out there, right? Like drink coffee, don't drink coffee. It's good for you. It's bad for you. It disrupts these things. It doesn't, you know, so there's a lot of food confusion. What are your thoughts on caffeine? Should our listeners consider giving it up? Give it to us straight. Yeah, and I know Maria's stance on it. And I've, I've spoken to her about it and, and Bulletproof Coffee and all that. Now, not all coffee is created equal. So there is a, a vast difference between getting your coffee beans from Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts versus, versus a high-quality source that's organic, tested for heavy metals, tested for mold, et cetera. So if you do it the right way, which is the way I do it, I love my coffee, I love my caffeine. Now, with that being said, I'm due for a... a, a uh, no, what is it? What did you call it? Febru- February? What is it? <laughs> no, February. <laughs> yeah, I'm due for that for sure. Because 
I have been drinking it too much, right? So there is a benefit of sure, for sure from abstaining from it because the more consistent you are with having caffeine, you create a resistance, you need more. Now, I haven't been like that. I've had a certain amount every single day and I, I cap it out that. And I have a caffeine curfew, right? Once I get past 12 p.m., I'm not going to have any caffeine. I have high quality caffeine. I put a little bit of some fat uh, and some sea salt. So that's okay for me. I function well, uh, although I'm due to go, you know, to detach from it for a little bit. Now, some people who, especially those who have addictions, they'll abuse it. They'll have it. They'll have it throughout the whole day. They'll have the wrong source. So it makes sense if you're in that category to take it out, take it out of the diet, take it out for a period of time, let your body reset, let your, give your adrenals a break, like what you're both doing to, uh, this month. And then if you choose to, after 30 days or so, bring it back in. And then you're going to find that you need less and less often, and you'll be able to actually get more bang for your buck from that coffee. So I think it's a great cyclical, a great idea to use it like a cyclical approach. Everything in nature is cyclical. Detox is cyclical. A woman's hormones, uh, every month she has her period. That's cyclical. Everything, you have all four seasons, cyclical. So I view supplements that way. I view diets that way. I view uh, coffee and caffeine that way. You know, But if you do coffee the right way and you use it cyclical and you're not addicted to it, the right beans have been proven to actually have antioxidants, help with liver health, helps with ketone production, helps with mental clarity and function. So like everything, there's, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray areas. You got to just know how to apply this for you, your unique situation. Yeah. And if I'm correct, you have, you have like links to, to sources that you trust for coffee, correct? For coffee. Yeah. Beans. You want me yeah. to share it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get that information from okay. you for sure. And, and make sure that that's in the show notes, but I do remember seeing that on your website or in a newsletter. I do subscribe. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah, I do. I do have a, a source I'll give to yeah. you. Awesome. Thank you. And I think I've heard you talk before about probably the ideal time to have a coffee is not right when you wake up. Oh, yeah. Can you oh. speak to that a bit? Absolutely. Yeah. So the best, the, the worst time to have coffee, well, I shouldn't say the worst time. The worst time to have coffee is before bed. <laughs> but the, <laughs> the second worst time to have coffee is when you wake up first thing in the morning. The reason is this. When you wake up first thing in the morning, your cortisol is activated and cortisol is a very powerful hormone. It, it gives you energy. And the reason it's activated because we are uh, we are in sync with mother nature. So, so the sun comes up, we're designed to get up, we activate these hormones, cortisol being one of them, and it helps you get ready for the day, gives you energy. But And the, the problem here is this, cortisol is much more powerful than caffeine. So when you have your cup of coffee first thing in the morning, what happens is cortisol is going to overpower that caffeine. It's going to render it useless. You're not going to really get much bang for your buck from the caffeine, leading you to want more coffee, maybe an energy drink, and drinking more caffeine throughout the rest of your day. That's not good. But here's the biohack. Once you wait an hour and a half after waking up, 90 minutes, cortisol naturally begins to peak down. Then you could have your caffeine, whether it's from coffee or tea, you're going to get much more sustainable energy from that caffeine, and it's going to prevent you from getting multiple cups. You're going to feel much better. So that's the hack right there. I know people are like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to function the first 90 minutes of my day. Like Molly's like, oh, I got, this is not a life worth living. <laughs> you could start by doing waiting 30 minutes and then 45 minutes and then uh, 60 minutes and then working your way up to 90 minutes. That's the ideal time to have it. Okay. That makes so much sense. And you're giving me so much hope. And you're right. There was a time there where I thought I might have to try and cross the border to come help support Molly because <laughs> it was tough times. And it's so interesting because both of us live such a clean life, right? And so it's, it's you know, and I don't drink a ton of caffeine, but when I removed it, I realized how much I missed it and how much substances, psychoactive substances are in our society and we're yeah. relying on to function. That's kind of a scary thing. So I love the idea of like, you know, removing it for a bit. I also love the idea right now of adding it back in. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about you, Ben, is I watch you show up on all the summits and it's not about just weight. It's about living your best life. And that would be what we would say is a recovery lifestyle. And when we work with individuals, you know, we work very holistically. So that's working on the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Do you have a spiritual practice? And when you work with clients, do you suggest certain things that have worked for you or, you know, have worked for others? Yeah. Thank you for the kind words. 
Absolutely. I believe you got to exercise before you exercise. So I do see so many people who come into, for example, my Keto Camp Academy and they're, I've been doing keto for six months. I've been doing keto for two years and I'm stalled or I'm not getting the results I want. You know, does, does keto not work? And I asked them, hey, you know, have you been doing any kind of like gratitude practice? Have you, how's your sleep? How is your self-love? You know, those are so important because health is multifactorial. It's a holistic approach, like you said. So spiritual is a component of that. Personally, I do have, I have a strong relationship with God and some people don't believe in God and that, that's fine. You could substitute that word with love, mother nature, the universe, whatever, but there is a higher source. So I have a strong relationship with God. I do gratitude journaling every single night. Uh, so here is my spiritual practice. When I am lying down in bed with my girlfriend, we both do, we write down, we have a, note, a notepad just like this, and we write down 10 things that we're grateful for that happened during the day, right? For example, when I'm writing tonight, I'm going to say, I'm grateful that I was able to speak with Clarissa and Molly, and we were able to chat about this very important topic. I'm going to write uh, whatever happened throughout the day. I'm going to express my gratitude. And I do the same thing in the morning. I wake up and then I'll write 10 general things. I'm grateful for life. I'll say the words, today's going to be a great day as my feet hit the ground. And I'll start the day that way. And I also write down my goals as well. And then I practice self-love. I, I practice, I literally look in the mirror at uh, myself in the eyes and I, I tell myself, thank you. I love you. In my head all day long, I say the words, I love myself. I love myself. Because I'm somebody who used to hate myself. I'm somebody who used to be depressed. I used to hate everybody, not just myself. I used to have very negative thoughts about people, hateful thoughts about people. And I realized that we become what we think about. So we don't get what we want in life. So you want keto, you want fat loss, you want energy levels. We don't get what we want in life. We get what we are. And what we are is those thoughts. And the average person are, is thinking 60,000 thoughts every single day. And at least 90% of those thoughts are the same thoughts as the day before, which are typically negative thoughts. If the person is watching the mainstream news, the mainstream media, they're on their social media feed, they have a, a relationships of people gossiping and complaining, those are going to be negative thoughts. And we learn these behaviors primarily during the first seven years of life. And then it becomes our paradigm. And we don't even have to think about it. We're just thinking these thoughts on autopilot. And we're wondering why we can't heal with all these negative thoughts. So the first thing to do is to intercise by thinking about or getting aware of those thoughts. And then if you have a negative thought, if you have a self-limiting thought, choose a better thought. That is the greatest power we have as a human it's the ability to choose a better thought. And the great thing about choosing better thoughts is that the subconscious mind cannot distinguish between what's real and what's not real. It'll accept it as truth. So in the past, when you've been thinking negative thoughts, why am I so overweight? Why do I have this sugar addiction? Why, you know, you're complaining, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to get more to complain about. That's a universal law. But then once you start shifting and thinking about better thoughts and thoughts that serve you and serve other people, you'll get more things that you want in life that will work for you because we become what we think about and what we appreciate, appreciates. So that is a spiritual practice that you could apply on a daily basis. And it's really tricky because it's when you're walking your dog or brushing your teeth and washing your dishes. It's those thoughts that you think throughout the day. And one thing I want your audience to really understand is that those self-limiting thoughts have nothing to do with who you are or your potential. It has everything to do with just learned behaviors. It has really nothing to do with you. And if you could think about your conditioning, right? When we think about our conditioning, the, the story I'm going to share real quick is a story of a, a baby elephant out in Africa. And this baby elephant, what they do immediately when this baby is born into this world, they put this elephant to work all day long. They give it work to do. And then every night, after a long day's work, they would tie shackles around the chains of the baby elephant, stake the shackles into the ground, and the baby elephant would stay there overnight. Now, the baby elephant wants to escape and break free. It tries to break free every single night, but it's, it's too weak. It's still a baby. And it would try for weeks and weeks and weeks, but eventually it stops trying. It gives up. Now, what happens is years later, this baby elephant is now a full-grown beast, capable of pulling a loaded car, capable of pulling almost 10 times its own body weight. They still put this elephant now to work all day long. And they, after a long day's work, they tie the same chains and the same shackles around the ankle, stake it into the ground and leave that elephant there overnight. 
the elephant could just break free for freedom and be happy and successful, but it doesn't even try to escape. Why? Because it has been conditioned to believe that once the chains are on your ankles, you're stuck, you're trapped. So the question, the elephant will not even leave unless there's a fire that's lit behind it. It will actually die there before it tries to escape. And the question is this, what are the chains that are, are on your ankles right now? What are these shackles, these metaphorical shackles that you've been conditioned to believe that you're trapped, but you're really not? And it's those thoughts. So once you start thinking better thoughts, you could release the chains. And that is a very powerful thing that I, I believe could apply to any nutritional approach that you follow. Yeah, that's amazing. And just thank you for sharing it in the way that you share it. Because again, Clarissa and I can show up with our clients all day long, but I think they get tired of our voices. So it's so <laughs> nice to hear it from somebody else just, and saying it in just a little different way too, you know, and knowing that you, you, you know, your role in this world is something that's different than our role, but that you're still saying this, you still have the same message. And I think it's just a human message that applies across the board, that it will always come back to those self-limiting beliefs. And I, in fact, you know, listening to you tell that story, um, just reminds me of like Don Miguel Ruiz's, the four agreements, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and really just making sure that we're impeccable with our, with our thoughts, which means, you know, not only the things we're thinking, but the things we're saying and yeah, and just beautiful. Thank you so much for that. So we're going to shift gears just a little bit. And and I'm a little bit partial to this question being a mother of young children myself. So I know you have a ton of followers, which means that there's got to be more than just me being the only mom or parent showing up in your, in your messages, um, or even in your keto camp groups. Um, you know, so how do you help them through, um, setting themselves up for success, preparing food for their children, maybe preparing food for their spouse. Maybe these people are eating different than they are. So how do you help them like kind of walk that and even maybe even bring their family members on board with this new, you know, way of eating, getting the processed stuff out. Yeah. Talk to us about that without creating more diet mentality, right? Like without putting like eating disorder or diet culture on those folks. Yeah. Very important question. Yeah. The first thing I would recommend is to make some swaps. And the first swap would be to remove these these bad toxic fats that are found in a lot of kids uh, products that you know food products, also adult products, they're found everywhere. They're unstable fats, they're actually worse than sugar. So it's the vegetable oils, the canola, the soybean, the cottonseed, uh safflower, grapeseed, rice bran oils. So the first thing to do is I would recommend doing an audit on the pantry and seeing if there's any of these bad fats. And if there is, getting rid of them, but but also replacing them with something. So you would replace them with more stable fats, the avocado oil, the olive oil, the coconut oil. So making that switch right there, right there would be important. And then secondly, I've seen it be a challenge to get the entire family on board. But when, let's say, one person starts to do this change, and then they start to feel better, look better, they start to transform them health, their health, it, it starts to inspire the rest of the family. They start to ask questions. It's very difficult to have a conversation with a family member or a sibling who has known you since you've been very, very young because it's what's called the powdered butt syndrome. Dr. Ken Berry has spoken about this before. Somebody has powdered your butt. It doesn't matter if you're a rocket scientist. You could be telling them X, Y, Z, and they're just not going to listen to you. (laughs) So when you could have a third party, like like you said, I come in here and I, I share some of the things that you're sharing, but it's a third party. There's something that's very strong with third party. So sharing a video or saying, I watched this very interesting video and you share it with them, share it with your husband, your wife, that could help as well. But really you getting the results, inspiring the other people and then making those simple swaps, getting the vegetable oils out. And then also with the sweeteners, right? You could, you know, less sugar, more monk fruit, more stevia, these little simple swaps that they won't really notice a difference goes a long way. Yeah, that's so helpful. And I think it's hard. Um, a lot of parents just feel when they first jump into this food plan that, oh, what what am I going to make? How am I going to feed everyone? Because we're not used to cooking anymore as a society, right? And this mm-hmm. requires a level of food prep that we're not used to. And it's so interesting when I work, start beginning with clients, you know, you have to teach them how to eat, how to sleep, how to breathe, all these things that used to be come naturally to us. And, you know, it's all part of the biochemical repair. So we obviously work with our clients to help them find a healthy sleep routine. I've heard you speak about how important sleep is to craving control. Can you speak about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I love the work that you, you two are doing. So I acknowledge you both. Uh, yeah, sleep. So there was a, a several studies that show if you're getting suboptimal sleep, uh, there was one study that showed less than five hours per night. It's a problem. It destroys your willpower reserves because what happens uh, at a physiological level is the next morning after one poor night of sleep, the next morning you have higher levels of cortisol, which is that stress hormone. It stores fat and then lower levels of, well, higher levels of cortisol, higher levels of glucose because glucose follows cortisol. And then of course, insulin goes up with it. But also you have higher levels of ghrelin, which is a hunger hormone that tells you to pick up the fork, go find food, et cetera. And lower levels of leptin, which is a satiety hormone telling you to put the fork down and feel satisfied. So you're hungrier, you're storing fat. And then when you do eat, because you're probably going to cave in, when you do eat, you're less satisfied. So you want to eat more just from one poor night of sleep. And by the way, one poor night of sleep could keep you out of ketosis because when cortisol goes up, glucose follows, and then ketones will drop. So it could knock you out of ketosis. So you're going to have higher levels of stress. You're going to be on fight or flight mode, and you're going to be, the day's going to be in control of you instead of you controlling the day. So sleep is so important, no matter what nutritional philosophy you follow. It is the foundation of good health, of what I call perfect health. And if you build a strong foundation, then the keto, the fasting, whatever it is that you're doing is much, much more efficient. So I recommend really optimizing your sleep. I mean, I could give some tips if you'd like for me to give some tips. Yeah. So there's a few things you can do starting tonight that are very practical. Uh, the studies show that if you want to get more of this Delta sleep, uh, stage four sleep, which is called deep sleep, the temperature in your bedroom should be around 65 degrees Fahrenheit. That's where studies show you could get good, good deep sleep. The significance about deep sleep is that during deep sleep, most of your fat burning hormones are activated. So you're burning fat, but also the brain shrinks in size. And then you have a fluid that goes over the brain that flushes out toxins. It's called the glymphatic system. So it helps reduce inflammation and it helps with mental clarity and focus. And this is happening during stage four sleep. And then you also want more REM sleep, which is where you're processing short-term memory for long-term memory. So cold bedroom, dark bedroom, as dark as possible. You can either use blackout curtains or wear a sleep mask, taking a hot shower or a cold shower, like we mentioned before, about an hour before bed could also help. And then if you want to drink like some chamomile tea or take, you know, some sort of sleepy time tea, having a nighttime routine is going to be important. Turning off the TV. If you have, this is one, a really bad habit. A lot of people have the habit of watching the news right before bed. That's one of the worst things you can do for yourself. If you want to wipe out your immune system, live in fear. If you want to live in fear, you're going to be watching the news. That's going to put you in fear. And the subconscious mind is very impressionable right before bed. So if you're feeding it fear, stimulating you, it's raising your heart rate, it's pissing you off, whether you're talking about politics or whatever it is, that's not conducive to health. That's not conducive to good sleep because you need about 60 beats per, per minute or less in order to fall asleep. And if you're getting stimulated, not just from the news, watching something exciting, you're on your Facebook feed. So we want to develop a nighttime hygiene routine where we're not watching the news, reading a book, putting on some blue light blocking glasses and having that routine. And the more consistent you are with that, the better your sleep, the better you are with having uh, control over these sugar cravings and getting more results with what you're doing. Yeah. That's so important. I always talk to my clients. I'm like, stop doom scrolling right before you go yeah. to bed. What are you doing? So hearing you, you say those things, you know, I know Clarissa doesn't have children and I, I feel like I stalk you on social media and I don't think you have children, Ben. Um, I know you have a dog, a dog and, and two cats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do, uh, and they're younger. And so, and I know many of my clients also have young children and, getting that deep sleep is not always, even when we're doing those things, right. It's just like getting that good sleep is just not, I recently started taking magnesium and that has been helpful to yeah. get, finally get some of that deep sleep. I'm finally getting like an hour, but I see like guys like Ben Greenfield and, and other people posting like their aura rings and they're getting two plus hours of deep sleep. Like how do how do you do that? How does that, is that even a possibility for young parents or parents with young children? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's, what, do we, what do we do? <laughs> so I'm not speaking from experience because I don't have kids to your point. However, there are a couple things, little biohacks that you can do. There's something called a money time sleep window. 
And what that is, is every hour with every hour of sleep within this money time sleep window is equivalent to two hours of sleep outside of that when it comes to this Delta deep sleep. So that's roughly between the time between the time period of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So if you're able to really prioritize getting to bed earlier and being asleep during that four hour window, you're able to get that those uh, two hours plus of deep sleep because that's where it's taking most of it is taking place. So getting to bed earlier and waking up earlier is much better than going to bed later and waking up later. The second tip is utilizing something like a nap, a power nap. Sometime between 1 and 3 p.m. is the best time to do it. That's when our body temperature starts to dip a little bit. Melatonin increases, which is why some people might feel a little tired in the afternoon. So getting in about a 20 to 30 minute power nap is a good way to kind of recharge you. You're not going to get deep sleep. The goal is not to get deep sleep, but it's kind of a a way to kind of recharge you for the rest of the day. So those are two things you could incorporate. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome. Go ahead, Clarissa. Did you have a question? Oh, sorry. I thought (laughs) it's the no sleep and no caffeine. That's what's going on, right? (laughs) So have you experienced clients that you work with and they just can't be successful on the food plan you're working with? And do you think that those individuals might have a food addiction? And if you do think that that's something they struggle with, how do you approach the work that you do with them differently? Yeah. When somebody's following the the plan, when it comes to keto and fasting and doing the inner work, but they're still not really getting the results they want, then there's something upstream that's blocking their body from healing. There's only, there's three ways to heal the body. And I'm writing, I wrote about this in my new book. Number one, identify interference. Number two, remove interference. And then number three, allow the body to heal. So let's start with identifying interference. If you've been a sugar burner, eating high carbs, that's interference. So now you're doing keto, you remove that, but you're still not getting the results you want. There could be something else. There could be a toxicity component. That's actually the most common heavy metals, mold toxicity, a gut infection like SIBO. It could also be um, hidden infections in the mouth, like something called cavitations, root canals. There's something that's blocking the body from healing and we have to identify. That's where the health detective comes into play. We have to identify and investigate what's creating dysfunction so we could remove that interference and then let the body heal. So that's where I typically go. I start with asking those questions. Do you have silver amalgam fillings? Because 55% of those fillings is mercury. That mercury gets stored in the organs, primarily in the hypothalamus pituitary, which regulates your hormones, your thyroid. It also could go into your pineal gland, which could disrupt your sleep. And then your decision-making capabilities, it creates brain fog. It can lead to food addictions because you just have a blockage in the brain, which is mercury. So we would identify these healing opportunities and go a little bit deeper to see what we can do to remove them and allow the body to heal. Because once you do, the human body is absolutely incredible. It is one of the great, it's the world's greatest physician and healer. And that's the human body. We have access to that 24 seven, 365, but there's something blocking this innate intelligence. And the job is to identify the blockage. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it'd be very helpful for users or listeners too, to hear that advice and and just to look a little deeper into if something is not sticking for them. Now I have a more challenging question for you. I see you all over social media. You've got the mental health six pack. You've got the keto six pack. You're smart. You're good looking. You have more energy than people call me the energizer bunny, but (laughs) you show up and you are positivity power all the time. So from an outsider's perspective, I think I can't live a life like Ben. Like there's no Mm. way that I can do that because he's just, it's just too much. Is there anything that you struggle with that would help, you know, our listeners identify that, hey, you're not just superhuman, you struggle too. And if there are things you struggle with, how do you cope with them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to answer that. Very important question. I love that you asked that. I struggle with a few things, you know, um, first of all, every single human being is a masterpiece because we're all pieces of the master. So let's understand that we're all unique. And if I'm doing something that is inspiring to somebody that shouldn't, that should not, well, let me rephrase that. If I'm doing something and you're looking at me like, okay, yeah, I have a beautiful girlfriend. I'm able to educate a lot of people. I'm all over social media. It should inspire you to understand that it gives you permission to do the same. 
some things that I'm struggling with right now, my lower back has been bothering me for the past, since the year started. I've had, uh, since I was obese, I used to have a lot of back issues and it's been intermittent since. But I've been seeing a chiropractor, but it's been affecting me in a way where I can't exercise right now. I can't work out. And I feel a little sluggish. I feel a little fat developing around my, my, my stomach here. I just don't feel as lean, as mentally sharp because I haven't been able to exercise. And I, this whole week, I've been actually working from my couch because the pain has been really bad. I'm looking at a chiropractor. I did x-rays. I have damage. I have misalignment. And I'm getting that corrected, but I'm struggling with not being able to exercise. I feel a little bit pudgy and sluggish. I also struggle with you know comparing myself to other people, comparing myself to other, like Ben Greenfield, Thomas DeLauer, uh, other incredible people in the space where sometimes I'll see them and I'll be like, man, that's, you know, I, how are they able to do that? And then, and then I'll start putting myself down and putting them on a pedestal. But I'm really aware of that now. And I automatically correct myself going back to the thought. So I'll choose a better thought. And then I'll say, well, if they're doing that, that gives me permission. I could do the same. So it's really a matter of not comparing yourself to somebody else. Your chapter one is different than their chapter 21. So everybody's on a different path, different journey. And I've been re getting really good at that, but I still find myself if I'm like on a, looking at their stories or something like that. And, I, and they're, they're doing things that I want to aspire to do. I'll catch myself and I'll say, that gives me permission to, to do it. I'm on a different path than they are. Same thing with the person looking at me. I'm on a different chapter than you are. And we shouldn't compete against anybody else. The, our only competition is to beat yesterday, to have better thoughts today than we did yesterday, to do better actions today than we did yesterday. And it's these small little tweaks that really lead to giant peaks. So to answer your question, those are two things I'm struggling right now, comparing myself to other people, having a self-worth. My word of the year for 2021 is self-worth. You know, sometimes I found myself on podcast last year, interviewing amazing people that I've admired. And I would dim my light thinking that, you know, I shouldn't say something or ask something thinking that it wasn't a good enough statement. So I would dim my light, put them on a pedestal. So my, my word this year is self-worth. And I've been really getting a lot better at catching myself when I'm, when I'm dimming my own light. I love that. We're, we're big fans of having words for the year too, versus resolutions and just constantly putting that word out there. I love it. And thank you so much for, you know, again, just humanizing yourself for our clients, because I do the same thing. Benazadi and I put you on a pedestal and then I get like flustered and you know, whatever, but, but here it is. We're just human beings and we just all have a message and it's okay. It's okay. If we have differing opinions and that kind of thing, we don't, I don't think we do, but if we did, it would be all right. Right. So, um, we just have a couple more questions. So I'm going to ask you, when does your new book come out and how do our listeners find you? Yes. So the new book is going to come out. I, I don't have a official date. I have a tentative date, either the last weekend of March or the first week of April. So very, very soon. Yeah. It's about 95% done. I'm going to get it available for pre-order before this month is over. So it it'll be available on Amazon by the end of February to get on pre-order. And then you could check me out on um, anywhere. I mean, the Keto Camp podcast, since this is a podcast, is probably a good transition. Also, the, our Keto Camp YouTube channel, uh, Campus Spell with the K, Keto Camp, uh, is a great platform. And then on any social media platform, I've been doing Clubhouse uh, every Monday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time with Cynthia Thurlow. We've been doing some Clubhouse rooms, so you could find me on there as well, at the Benazadi. All right. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to let you go because I know you have another appointment right away. We do have a signature question. Maybe I'll email it to you and then you can give us your answer and we can include it in the show notes. Ask it. Go ahead. Okay. All right. So if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food, health, sugar, processed foods, what would it be? I would tell myself to develop a intuition, a relationship with your body when you have those foods, how do you feel? This is what I would tell my kid. Yeah. When, when I have kids, I'll tell them, Hey, you know, when you had those pancakes, did you feel energized? Did you feel good? Did you want to go play with your friends or did you feel like tired? You wanted to go take a nap. You didn't feel good. So I would tell myself to develop a relationship on how food makes you feel. And then going into that, the next time you could look at the pancakes or look at the eggs and say, Oh, I, I actually feel more energized when I have the eggs versus the pancake. So that's what I would tell myself, develop that relationship. 
I love that answer so much. I'm excited for you to have kids and be able to raise them that way. I mean, this is, I do feel the next generation is going to be blessed with so much more knowledge. So it is very exciting. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for being here today. And we will probably have you back if you would be interested in that in the future. I would love to. Thank you. It was a great interview. You both are doing amazing work for your community. So kudos to both of you. And thank you for the interview. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.